I said I'll enjoy my cup of tea and you can enjoy the ambiance of the evening. I was thinking as I came in here just how lucky we are to have these kind of places to congregate and meditate together and practice together. You know, and mosques are being bombed and people are being imprisoned for being meditators and, you know, just how delightful it is and delicious to be able to come together and, you know, share in a sacred space and touch something beyond our normal everyday busy, rushing, doing, having, getting, consuming, buying, you know multitasking, you know, and to, and to see that there's something way more profound and <clears throat> silent and deep and that sort of underpins and supports and nourishes everything. And in the busyness of our lives and our schedules and uh, the culture that we live in, you know, we, it's, it's, it's not supported to, to look within, to be quiet to go deep, to be with ourselves. And what a great opportunity, what a, how wonderful that these places like this exist that remind us you know, of our true nature, of our being, of our essence, of, of what's really important, which I'm sure is why you all come here in the first place, is to remember. You know. Mindfulness, the translation of mindfulness is to remember. Remembering, self-remembering. So when we're being mindful, when we're being awake, when we're being attentive, we are remembering, recollecting, recollecting in the moment, not thinking in the moment, but actually dwelling in the moment. So, um, you know, I appreciate just as much as you coming here and sitting and and being invited into that space you know, of, of presence and awareness and kindness and to slow down and to be for a little bit, a little oasis in the often <coughs> desert of our conveyor belt lives, our tumble drier minds. So... Um, what I wanted to talk about tonight, whether I get to it or not, I'm not sure, but we'll see, um, is about working with our minds. Those difficult, gnarly things we seem to carry around in our skull that are both beautiful and wonderful and imaginative and creative and inspired and also very torturing and uh, challenging both in meditation and in our lives and in our relationships and with ourselves. Anybody have that issue? Am I just checking like I was on the right planet. So there's a phrase that, um, that uh, I actually think it originally came from Marcus Aurelius, but John Kabat-Zinn used it on his book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. It's a commonly used phrase. Wherever you go, there you are. So the title for my talk is, Wherever You Go, There You Don't Want to Be. Because <laughs> that's usually more the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's true wherever you go, there you are. It's you know, one of those, you can't really argue with that. You know, wherever you go, there you are. You may not be that present that you're there, but you know, wherever you go, there you are. But so often, wherever we go, it's not quite where we want to be. Right? It's not quite how we imagined it. It's not quite what we were expecting. Maybe even tonight. You know. Maybe it's not quite what you had had in mind. So here you are. How is that? To be... To go wherever you go and there you are and to know that that is not necessarily where you want to be which is most of the time we live in that place where it's just not quite right. Just not up to snuff, as we say in England. Not to snuff. Just not cricket. Um, 
you know, which is a, which is really what when the the Buddha talked about dukkha, suffering and satisfactoriness. It really actually did the tra- one translation is just not quite right. You know, and our experience, our ongoing experience, on a physical level, on an emotional level, on a relational level, for sure, in our relationships, it often feels like this isn't quite right. I'm doing something wrong, or they're doing something wrong. Um, so the question is how we how we relate to that, how we engage with that, how we react to that when it ain't quite right, when it's not how we want it to be. Like even right now, is this experience how you want it to be in this moment? Maybe you're too hot, maybe you're too cold, maybe you're tired, maybe you're grumpy. Maybe you're bored. God forbid we experience boredom for a few moments. <laughs> what a tragedy. We're terrified of feeling bored. So we run, we keep busy. So yesterday, uh, an, an old acquaintance of mine, we were talking about teaching, and he said, well, so, so you know, he was asking me how the teaching was going, and, and, and then he said, so how do you stay humble? Um, and that there was a sort of a assumption in the question that I wouldn't stay humble because I was teaching. And um, I said, well, you know, I just have to pay attention to my own experience, and that's very humbling. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that if you have any modicum of awareness and sensitivity to your own stuff and foibles and vulnerability and humanness and, and all of that, that you can't help but stay humble. You know, it's just the deal. You know, with being human, whether you're a teacher or whatever it is you do, it doesn't really matter. You know, um, and I'm going to talk a little about that later. Uh, I know when Jack and Jack Confield and Joseph Goldstein, who founded this this tradition, as it were, when they were meditating together about oh, probably 25 years ago, 30 years ago, and they just sat a three-month retreat and they had rooms quite close to each other and and when they met after this three months of silence one said to the other the first thing they said I think it was Joseph said it's humbling isn't it it's humbling isn't it to meditate to be with yourself especially in a silent retreat but even just for 35 minutes that we did tonight it's humbling to see how challenging it is to be present to have a mind that is wayward and unruly and undisciplined and like a, like a puppy on drugs, you know. I mean, talk about monkey mind. It's a monkey mind, you know, with, you know, a lot of caffeine or something. Another um, memory came to me when I was thinking about this theme of being humble was uh, when I was talking to James Baraz, who often teaches here and teaches in the East Bay about he has a weekly Dharma group that's been going for probably 25 years and I once asked him you know how do you keep coming up with material he said oh I just pay attention that week to my life (laughs) (laughs) plenty of material as you all know you could all give a Dharma talk on what happened today probably (laughs) so um so one of the things I was reflecting on is um, the, uh, the the non-linear nature of uh, of life and uh, spiritual practice and the spiritual journey. You know, there's a common myth in 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 spiritual scenes, including this one, including everyone that I know that we move from you know darkness to light from from suffering to freedom that's not exactly a myth but um it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a framework that we use but what happens the mind starts to go oh great we're on this path we're on this journey and it moves from dark to light so it's only going to get better <laughs> it's a one way street you know 
And especially when we hit those moments or the times in our meditation or in our lives when things are going well, we go, oh, I finally made it. It's going to be like this forever. And it's only going to get better. And it's, I'm going to be on cruise control from now on. I'm so relieved. I put that you know, groundwork in for those years and now it's, you know, whew, glad I'm over that. Thank you very much. And then, of course, you know, something, you know, slams in our face the next moment, usually, when we get so full of hubris and arrogance and says, no, wait a minute, actually, it's not quite like that. It's not linear and straightforward and like this stairway to heaven. Um, life's way too interesting for that, you know, it's too too messy and too complicated and too mysterious and uh, likes to keep us on our toes. So, um, why am I saying that? Well, I've been experiencing a lot of that recently. <laughs> like, wow, this is interesting. My, my life has been quite, my inner life has been quite challenging of late. And, um, and it's very humbling, you know, as a person and as a teacher and as a practitioner of 25 years to, to, to revisit old themes and patterns and stories and memories and struggles and, um, and to be really challenged, you know, life puts us up against our edge. That's the nature of being a human being at times. You know, and the question again is how how do we work with that? How do we hold that? Do we do we you know how do we, do we do we do we you know condemn ourselves? Do we berate ourselves? Do we think we've lost the plot? Do we you know you know hibernate in depression? You know what, what's our response when 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 thing when we're pushed up against our edge? So I was backpacking uh, recently, um, and as many of you know, I love being out in the wilderness. And one of the things I love about it is you never know what you're going to get. You, it's, it's, it's always unpredictable. Um, even if I know, you know, I had a rough sense of where I was going, but I'd never been to this part of the Sierras. Um, and I have a part of me that's very spontaneous, and so I just said, I'm just going to go here. And the next day I was up in my car and driving to the, the mountains and didn't really know where I was going, but, um, and was had to, you know, really work with this, this idea of beginner's mind. Like you just don't know what's in store. So let's keep a fresh, open, open, uh, vantage point. And so I went to this place. Um, one of the places I went to was, uh, I wanted to explore cause I'm always checking out places for, to do my nature retreats was this place above Bishop called Desolation Lakes. I should have known from the name. (laughs) It was intimating something about the nature of this topography. (laughs) So I hike up, you know, to 12,000 feet, you know, and I hadn't really hiked for quite a while, so I got, you know, covered in blisters and, you know, all of that, and it was mosquito season and... um, so I was out of shape and getting be- eaten up and beaten up. And I arrived in this incredibly desolate area <laughs> that was just bleak, beautiful, stark. And at other times I might appreciate that bleak, stark wildness. But in this moment it was like, oh, how depressing. <laughs> I've just hiked up a 12,000 foot pass. <laughs> and... Um, so I went back down the hill. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. I could do a 55-mile loop the other way to get out, or I could just hike six miles, or 10 miles, 12 miles back down the trail, which I did. And, um, you know, mindfulness is also about appropriateness, you know, meeting the moment appropriately, and, and it didn't feel appropriate to, to base camp in a desolation <laughs> area. <laughs> On my own, so um, so anyhow, I um, hiked up to um, above Mammoth, which is a, one of my favorite places of Thousand Island Lake. Some of you might know it's a very well popular spot. It's a, it's a little lower in elevation; it's about ten thousand feet. 
um, hiked a lot, got lots of blisters, got eaten up by mosquitoes a lot. You know, it's really fun being out in the wilderness. <laughs> and it rained a lot, and there was a lot of ha- uh, lightning storms, uh, hailstorms even, which were really fun. Um, and my partner kept asking me, why do you do this? Somebody said, there's this thing about backpacking. It's like, why do you pretend to be homeless? <laughs> when you've got a perfectly good house back home, you know, comfortable, heated. <laughs> and then you pretend to be homeless for a week, you know, eat, eat you know, rabbit food and <laughs> get really uncomfortable. It's an interesting phenomenon we do. So anyhow, I, I ended up at this place that John Muir said was the most beautiful lake in the Sierras. Anybody know what, which one that is? Lake Adiza. It's a very small lake up at the foot of um, Banner, Banner and Ritter Peaks and, the, and the, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, some kind of pinnacle mountains. They're called something else. And um, so this was after several days of hiking in, the, in this, the rain and the storms. And I'm not a really big fan of lightning when I'm up at 12,000 feet. And it feels a little closer to the source. Um, anyway, I get to Adiza Lake and it's like, and I'm, you know, of course, I have a lot of expectations. This is the most beautiful lake in the Sierras, according to the guy who's, you know, walked all over the Sierras. So it's, you know, I'm really got my hopes up. Because I said it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the, the, the best trip I had taken for myself. And, um, and it was a really beautiful lake, I have to say. If you really want to see a beautiful lake, go see a Dyser Lake. But it really also didn't do it, you know. <laughs> Whatever I was thinking it would do... Um, wherever you go, there you don't want to be. It was like, I could tell it was a beautiful lake. I could tell it was spectacular. I could tell it was really pristine. And it was like, yeah, that's interesting. What time is it? It's time for a cup of tea, I think. And so you never know what you're going to get. And it's like, how do you meet that moment? How do I not beat up on myself for thinking it should be different? That's the, that's the extra suffering. And I'll talk about that. The Buddha talked about we add this extra dart this extra arrow. We have an experience, pleasant, unpleasant, good, bad, neutral. And then we add this extra layer with our mind, usually, that it's not, that we, it should be different. We should be different. We should be treating it differently. Come on, you're in John Muir's favorite lake. What's your problem? You've got a problem if you can't really appreciate this. Well, maybe in that moment you can't. And so can that be okay? And that was my point. Can it be okay that it's not you know what I'm what I'm used to experiencing, which is a lot of awe and wonder and mystery. I could appreciate it for it aesthetically, but I did hike up to the next lake above that, which I thought was actually more beautiful. Maybe he didn't hike up further, but uh, called Iceberg Lake, where there's the icebergs in this lake at you know, twelve thousand foot, and people go swimming in there, and very exquisite and very strong transmission. I thought from the mountains, and so. Um, I was reminded of this license plate that a friend of mine said uh, likes a lot, which goes something like, um, "Oh, great, another opportunity for personal growth." <laughs> something like that. You know those moments? Like, oh, great! I know. I know someone's going to say, "This is really good for you. This is really good for you to, you know, go through this, you know, and feel this pain, and you know, because it's the last thing you ever want to hear. This is really good for you." It's really good for you, you know. You'll appreciate this in the future. It's like, thanks, but right now we're in the present moment and it sucks. <laughs> so this this second arrow, um, the, 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 the metaphor that Buddha used was uh, somebody gets shot, you know, in a battle, you know, with an arrow and all these people gather around trying to rescue him and help him and heal him and take the arrow out and stop him from bleeding and dying and and all he's interested in, he keeps asking his question, well, who shot the arrow? And what kind of bow was it? And what kind of feathers did they use on the tip of the bow? And where did it come from? And how far do you think they were shooting from? And we add these extra layers of stuff, thoughts, concepts, ideas that aren't actually helpful. Except what we do is usually add something, things that are more painful. And um, one of the th- layers that we add a lot to our experience is a layer of judgment, a layer of shooting, a layer of criticism, condemnation about our experience not being as it should be, as if 
this aspect of our mind called the critic knows what our experience should be. So um, I was writing this talk thinking, noticing that the critic was wondering whether this talk was really up to snuff. (laughs) Which of course it always does, you know, it likes to entertain itself. Um, So, like many of you, um, I've spent a lot of time working with my uh, critic, with my judge. Anybody notice they've got a strong critic? (laughs) Notice some self-judgment from time to time, moments? It's one of the... um, the parasites of our era, you know, it really is a plague that it inflicts a tremendous amount of suffering and pain and torture and depression and all kinds of things on us. So I thought I would talk a little about about the critic and just to, just to just to bring it more into the foreground and how and how we can relate to how we can work with it. There's a cartoon. From the Pacific Sun, there's a doctor and a kangaroo, and the doctor saying, "Sure, I think we can tighten up that pouch." <laughs> you can relate to that, I'm sure. This is from Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach School. The problem is not that we want to be happy, but that we are going about it in the wrong way. When we really see that we are going about it in the wrong way, we quit. And then life can unfold in its own, on its own. We cannot make it unfold. We can quit our rejection, our judgment, our intolerance, but we will quit these patterns only when we completely and totally see what they are doing and that they are hurting us. So... Um, you know, mindfulness, again, is the tool in which we start to see, we start to become more aware, more present, more awake, more self-conscious of the patterns of our mind. And one of the patterns that we start to see is the patterns of our self-criticism, our self-judgment, and how um, painful and uh, an obstruction it can be to, to happiness and to ease and to well-being. So this is from one of my favorite cartoons, Rhymes with Oranges. It's called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic, which is things that the, um, the critic likes to get up to, you could say. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> compare, yourself to, compare yourself to somebody. Compare. I've written this wrong. Think about someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Think about the people you regularly disappoint. (laughs) Disregard all the compliments from people who supposedly love you. (laughs) Examine your face and your body closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. (laughs) This is called a checklist of feeling pathetic. It really works. You should try it. This is is the five-fold path of feeling pathetic. (laughs) Guaranteed. So you could add your own personal list onto that one, right? You know, we all have our lists of how we feel pathetic. You know, five minutes after we've woken up in the morning, oh my God, my bedroom's a mess. My bedroom is always a mess. I can't believe I never tied it up. I'm such a slob. It's so indicative of my life. It's just such a mess. I can't even get my room together. How am I going to get my life together? I haven't even gone out of bed. I can't believe I'm still in bed. I can't believe I'm beating up on myself already. I'm such a, I am such a failure. And I slept through, I didn't even meditate. Look at all the things that need fixing in this room. It's painting. Think of all the things that are, need fixing in my life. In my house, and my relationships, and my body, and my job, and my finances, and all the people that could be doing a better job than I'm doing right now, meditating or teaching or working or parenting. So it's really good to laugh. 
you know, if we don't laugh, it's not funny. It's kind of sad, suffering. So one way of understanding the critic is is the critic is basically saying, you're human and you have these foibles and it's not okay. As opposed to, you're human and yes, you have foibles. Yes, you're imperfect. That's the nature of being a human being. You know, we have both a certain completeness in our nature, and we also have our own idiosyncrasies and places that could do with some work and some development and cultivation and nourishment. And the critic's saying, it's not okay, you should be perfect. You should have it all figured out, fixed, together, presentable, cute, smart, sexy, and wealthy. Now. And it reminds us when we're not that idealized self, you know. So, of course, on my trip, my critic was like, well, how come you didn't plan this better? Like, <laughs> like desolation, duh. <laughs> you know, I have like 500 backpacking friends. I could have got, you know, detailed description of every great hike in the Sierras, and I decided to just wing it. And what I've noticed is the critic likes to take sides and actually argue both sides. So it's a complete lose-lose situation. It's great you're so spontaneous, but I can't believe you've arrived here without all of your stuff that you need. You're so disorganized. I, I'm really proud of you that you're, that you're you know, hiking alone for a week in, in the wilderness. It's really courageous, you know. But why didn't you bring friends? God, what's wrong with you? Like, the problem with you? Like, you're like a pariah or something? I mean, it's great you made it to the top of this pass. I mean, you made it in three hours, but, like, what's the rush? Like, Mr. Mindfulness Guy, what's the deal? Every moment's as important as every other moment. It's not about getting to the top. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. So you can tell that the the critic, you know, will will use whatever uh, it can to kind of nail you. So in this case, it you know, it's the like, let's nail a mindfulness guy. <laughs> you tripped over that little rock, didn't you? <laughs> so you can tell I had a fun time with myself on this trip. <laughs> I, I was I had great company the whole way. The whole way. <laughs> Take a break. Take a break. You're hiking way too hard. No. Relax, relax. You're such a slacker. God, get on with it. <laughs> this is from the writer Sir Walter Scott. He said, Caught not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. Caught not the critic's smile, nor dread his frown. So we do both. We, 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 we hunger for the approval. And so often we think we're, we're seeking the approval of others and, and, and so often actually we're seeking the approval of our own critic. And we're also fearing our critic's condemnation of what we do, what we say, how we are. <clears throat> so... Um, one of the main themes that we've that we develop as as we as we develop and our critic likes to uh, remind us of is that we're not enough in some way that we're lacking in some way that we're deficient and it's very very um very happy to point that out that we're not enough we're not smart enough or wise enough or wealthy enough or mindful enough or compassionate enough. You know, we live in this culture where it, we don't really know what enough is. You know, we're all seeking for, for, for so much and we've lost the, 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 the context and meaning of knowing when enough is enough. 
knowing that we're fine just as we are. Means that there's a there's a phrase. It's a it's a paraphrase of a phrase that Suzuki Roshi used used to use. That goes something like, "You're perfect just as you are, and you could all do with a little improvement." <laughs> but he, you know, put the the first statement first. That you're perfect just as you are. We are perfect just as we're fine just as we are. You know, put down the self help books and all of that. We're fine just as we are. We're complete just as we are. Whole just as we are. And we all could do with a little, you know, as we say, DIY in England, do it yourself, fixing up, you know. We're all kind of fixer-uppers too, that are worth investing in. I actually don't think we're fixer-uppers. I'll take that back. But we could, you know, we could all clearly have our work to do in relationship and in developing a heart and compassion and love and wisdom. I know a lot of people feel, feel this in parenting. You know, I think parenting is one of the most challenging things to do as a human being. And I hear this from many, many parents, that that sense of, where is the manual? Where is the instruction guide to this journey of parenting? How am I doing? I have no idea, but I feel like I'm doing a terrible job. This is from Anne Lamott. I'm probably just as good a mother as the next repressed, obsessive, compulsive paranoiac. (laughs) So as our friend Wes Nisko writes about our mind, he says we've lost the operating instructions. You know, we have these vast, you know, complex brain, 11 trillion synapses of things firing around, but we don't quite know how they work, and they seem to run us rather than rerun them. And we're also coping with, you know, um, you know these, these, these structures, these patterns, these deep habits. So much of them come out of our conditioning, of our childhood, early childhood developmental experiences, you know, when we're trying to navigate how to survive in a family system, in a culture, how to get love, how to be liked and loved, how to be accepted, how to gain approval, how to not incur the wrath of people around us, how to fit in, how to please, how to, how to be part of a community. You know, these are very challenging things as, as, a young, as a young being. And one of the structures that develops in the ego structure is a superego structure that helps navigate, helps us sense what's right and what's wrong, what will allow us to, to, to fit in with this particular family tribe that we've been born into so we can survive. What happens is that, that, that patterning, that those, those, those um, perceptions and self-perceptions uh, they start to take root, they start to get ingrained. And the, the, the criticism that we hear around us, coming towards us as young beings, we, we, they, they develop, they harden as we get older. And, we, and the, the ego structure maintains this way of trying to keep us on the straight and narrow so that we keep the supply of kindness and love and acceptance and warmth and, and all of that. So, um, and that carries on to adulthood. And, and we find that we still have the same voices. And then we find, you know, you know, we may have been an adult for 30, 40 years, and we find, wow, the voices are still the same. Amazing. You know, they stick around those voices. You notice that? Same themes, like if this was a pop song, it would have been fell, fallen off the charts 50 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 10 years ago. But they endure. And we keep listening to them as if there was a fresh song. Ooh, I'm really not a good person? Oh, that's interesting. I really messed up? Oh, really? I'm never going to get it together? Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, groove it, baby. I'm a terrible person. Yeah. So the good news with practice is we can start to see this stuff. 
we can start to see the grooves. I mean, with mindfulness, we become more aware of our inner process, and our minds, habits, and we start to see. Oh, look what! Look at the, look at this groove that's being worn deep. And one of the things that mindfulness supports us seeing is understanding the nature of mind, the nature of thoughts. The thoughts are just thoughts. They have no inherent power, no inherent reality other than that which we give them. Whether it's a beautiful thought or a judgmental thought, a critical thought, a demeaning thought, it's just a thought. And it only has a power if we believe it. But of course we do believe a lot of them. And that's one of the hooks, why we let them keep running and running and running, because we believe it's true. I mean, if we believe it's true, then we, we validate that thought by giving it space in our mind. I was on a re- teaching a retreat up the hill, and uh, an acquaintance of mine who's an actor, um, he was fairly familiar with watching his mind and his acting. He was walking down the hill, and, and maybe because he's a performing artist, he has particularly a particular sensitivity to criticism and, and his own inner critic. And one day, after doing a lot of practice on retreat, he was walked down the hill, and he just got, and his mind was berating him about you know not meditating well enough and being a slacker and you know the usual run of the mill and. He just suddenly had this realization, as insight does, it sort of pops out of the blue. Oh, these these judgmental thoughts, they're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. They don't actually have any reality or any substance to them. It's just like a tumble dryer in my mind. And suddenly the whole spell was broken for him in that moment. Not that the critic suddenly shriveled up and died, because it doesn't usually do that, mm-hmm. unfortunately. <coughs> um, it more becomes like a yapping dog that you sort of, you know, just ignore, or learn to ignore and not really be so bothered about. It becomes background noise, you know, and slowly sort of whimpers away at some point and gets quiet, but quieter. Um, every now and then comes back and, you know, takes a slice out of your ankle. <laughs> Ha, huh, you think I'm done? Well, wait a minute, buster. Look how badly you messed that job up. This is from the uh, teacher Byron Katie. She says, Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. The mind is inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. A very interesting statement. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. When the I arises, when you wake, when you wake up in the morning and say I, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, it's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. So take your pick. You know, what do you, which one do you want? You know, awareness gives us this capacity to a vantage point to see to, to see a thought as a thought. Like if you all imagine the thought of your house, right? That thought is not your house. It's just a thought, right? It has no reality. Even though we can, you know, we can create an image and it can feel very real. A demon, you know, like the story of the the great Buddhist hermit painter who would, you know, paint the dragon on the wall or the tiger on the wall, and as soon as he put the eyes, it went. <gasps> it was so scary, so lifelike. That's what we do with our mind. You know, we paint the very things, we create the very images and thoughts, and then we get scared of them. We get afraid of them. They torment us, and yet we we are the creator of them. It's so mysterious, isn't it? Mysterious to have these minds that seem to have life of their own. Which they kind of do in a way, actually. 
So, um, so in terms of practice with the with the, with this with the critic, so the the first and most important thing is to just is to recognize, to identify, to distinguish between a, 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 a normal th- a thought like the sky is blue today, and a judgment, to notice the difference between when we can discern between when we're evaluating our performance and saying, yeah, you know, I, I, there, there's ways that I could have improved my capacity doing that piece of work versus that was really lame, you know, that was kind of pathetic performance. You know, you, there's a, to, to distinguish between when, what's an evaluation, a discrimination or discernment, which is, which is neutral of <laughs> feeling tone, just has clarity to it, and when it has this quality that leads to a sense of collapse, one of the things that the critic does is it leads to a sense of inner collapse, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of deflation. We literally feel like the wind's fallen out of our sails. We kind of may even shrink in our demeanor, physical stature. So, and as we start to pay attention to the to the judgments, we start to see how many there are. One of the practices I give people is to count them in a day. Maybe tomorrow you should all count the number of judgments you have. Maybe every day this week. Just count how many you have. 75, 263, <laughs> 1,736 if you're really paying attention, or 5,021. It's a, there was a lot. you know. Mostly, the, mostly similar, mostly habitual. Um, <coughs> And it's another way of taking a step step back and going, oh, this is just a bunch of thoughts. So, so seeing, recognizing, naming. Um, a key point that I like to stress is that the critic has power, the judgments have power because we believe them. And because we believe the particular thought, whatever your top ten you know, tunes are, we, 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 we allow the mind to keep dwelling and repeating those thoughts, those thoughts, you know. So I can go into my car, I've got this old beaten up BMW, which I kind of love, and, um, you know, that's falling apart. The engine's fine, the rest of it's falling apart, um, especially the seats, all the upholstery is cracked and, you know, it's all over the place. And... And I can notice that most times I go in the car, it's like, got to fix the car seats. Haven't fixed the car seats. This is really a, this car's falling apart on you. Get it together. Or, or some statement about, you know, what this says about me or, you know, this is really important, you know, <laughs> fix my car seats, you know. So it's really, you know, these things are really good reflections about where, what, how I am in the moment. You know, sometimes I go and say, oh, it's an old car with an old car seat. What do you know? They're falling apart. Or it's, or it, oh my God, you know, I hope nobody else comes in the car. <laughs> so because we believe these thoughts, we let them torment us, and yet... If you imagine giving your, your, your number one critical thought to your best friend, right, who's hanging out with you for the day, and you just invite them to say that thing as much as your critic does, you know, like, you know, you're never going to find anybody, you know, you're never going to find love, you know, you're, no one's ever going to love you, or, you're never going get, to get it together, you know, you're a mess, you know. So you, you imagine giving a friend that, and, and your friend just follows you around saying, that's pathetic. <laughs> that was really pathetic. You would you wouldn't stop it. For, you wouldn't stand it for a millisecond. You would say, "Excuse me, did I ask your opinion? Is that really true? Is that helpful?" Even if actually for a moment there was something very accurate about the statement, like oh, that was really unkind the way you spoke to that bank clerk. You know, we could take that in two ways. Like, oh yeah, that was that was you know, I really that was really unkind. It was really un- uncaring of me to you know be so rude. Or we can have that hang over us like a black cloud for three days. I can't believe the way I talk. I just I'm such a horrible person. I can't believe you're so mean. 
you know, this, you do all this practice, you know, doing all this therapy, and look at what you do. God, you just you just rip into somebody when they slow or something. Don't give away what you want. <laughs> so, so there's a place for understanding how to relate to the critic in that just because it's we might think it's true doesn't give any reason for it to for it to keep repeating itself 50 times a day like oh yes thank you i wasn't very nice to the count to the bank clerk thank you adios amigo end of story like well, that's all we need it's like hey we you know, got it saw it remorse let it go no we carry it around we beat ourselves we use it to to pummel ourselves but, somewhat masochistically. <clears throat> Another thing that's useful is, uh, is, to, is to feel into the, the quality of the voice. The quality, you know, each of our critics has a, has, a, has, a, has a quality to it. And sometimes it sounds very like a, a voice from the past. You know, maybe a critical parent, critical father or mother, or a critical school teacher, or sibling or somebody who is really on our case and, and belittling us in some ways. And so what we do, we internalize those voices. And when we, when we can identify sometimes the, 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 where the origin of the voice comes from, it helps, it also, it helps create a little space like, oh, that's, that's what that's about. It's not actually even my voice. It's, it's somebody else's <laughs> voice that they probably said to themselves, that was probably said to them, and on it goes back to the generations. So one of the things that helped me a lot working with my critic when I first started practice um, was um, when I shifted from just noticing it to feeling the impact of it, to letting the to, to to really seeing how painful it was to talk to myself like that. You know, if you pay attention to, just like if you imagine somebody else saying all those things, you'd feel really hurt. But when we say them to ourselves and they're just churning around in the tumble dryer of our mind. We um, we don't register so much the impact, you know. The, the, those are kind of the it's like you know hammering a nail into the ground. We sort of like each time we hear it, there's a little diminishment. And and when I saw that, when I saw how painful it was in the heart, in the body, to, to it's like something snapped for me. It's like no, I'm not going to let this. I'm not going to side with this. You know, there's that great line that I sometimes talk about from Bankai, this uh, Korean teacher who said, don't side with yourself. Well, you could apply that teaching, don't side with your critic, you know, because normally we do, we say, because we believe it's the voice of reason or conscience or um, clarity or it's our guide. You know, and the critic says, well, if you didn't have me, where would you be? You would be kind of fumbling in the dark. Don't let me go. Very important. So we hold on to it because we don't we don't trust in our own wisdom and our own clarity, our own awareness, our own strength, our own capacity. So um, so what what do we do when the critic comes up? Well, often what we do is we start rationalizing, or what uh, sometimes called engaging the critic, where we go. Where we hear the judgment about our work, you know, or about how we are in relationship, we go, well, you know, that may be true, but I am really a nice person, you know, and I really, I was quite generous yesterday, and I, I did clean my bathroom earlier, and uh, you know, and we start doing all this ways of trying to defend ourselves, but in a way that what we do by that by that way of engaging is we just give more power to the source of the of the criticism. We're actually giving it validity by even even engaging in a dialogue. We're giving it some kind of stature, and actually, it's more useful to uh, to not engage in that way. See it as a judgment, notice it, feel the impact, let it go. I'll, I'll talk about some other ways to work with it. But Dustin Hoffman once uh, said in an interview, "A good review from the critics is just another stay of execution." <laughs> and that's like it's the same with ourselves and our critic you know our critic can be also like oh good job well done good 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 for you, you know, keep going hike up that hill get to that pass 
and you know, so we, we can feel temporarily relieved, but again, we're giving power to that same voice that will equally say, you messed up again. You know, it'll be mo- moments, minutes probably before that comes. So just some strategies um, before I run out of time here that I think are useful. Uh, personally, I find humor the most useful. When I was on doing some retreats on the East Coast and um, my critic was really up about my practice. You know, not good enough. Everyone else looks really enlightened. Like, how come I'm the only klutz who doesn't really know what he's doing? I've been doing this for years and I still don't know what I'm doing. And I would imagine the judge wearing this big white wig like they wear in England, you know, the <laughs> lords of the court or whatever they're called. Bad meditator. <laughs> Wrong. Flawed. And just somehow it just, you know, I, I couldn't take it quite so seriously when I was imagining it with a big white wig, you know. Sometimes it can be helpful to, as, a, as a way of, ta- of holding it lightly is to exaggerate the judgment. I have the worst car in the world. I'm the worst hiker in the world. I am the worst meditator in the world. You know, I'm the worst person in the world. My God, how terrible is that? You know, just kind of ham it up a little. Uh, another re- strategy is to agree with it. Yeah, I messed up. Yeah, I really blew that. Yeah, I'm a challenging person. Thank you. It's like a Tai Chi move. You know, because then the critics are like, oh, what do you mean? You're supposed to fight back with me. You're supposed to disagree and rationalize and do all these things. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm a klutz. You're right. I'm a klutz. I'm a failure. You got it. You win. And there's this. And suddenly this energy out of that whole dynamic is taken away. And it's just like, oh, I'm just agreeing with a thought. Who cares? You You can um, question whether it's true. Just ask the statement. Is is this true? Is it true that I'm a loser? Is it true that I'm a failure? Is it true I'm not getting anywhere in my life? Is it true that I'm I'm really a a, deficient person? Is it true? And you just you just throw a little inquiry in. Is it true? You don't, you don't get into a debate about it. Just like you just hold the question: Is it true? I find it also very helpful. Just like the analogy of the yapping dog, to mostly ignore it. You know, the critic will come on demand. You know, come you know on cue. You know, I can predict the times. You know, if I don't like my talk, my dharma talk, I can predict when I'm driving home at night. There, well, the critic will come, shouldn't have said that, didn't get that point in, should have said that, or whatever. And so it actually helps to know when, when, it's the, when, when there's an attack is likely. Um, but even if I don't, um, to just go, oh, yeah, 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 shut up, thank you, good night, go bother somebody else, as Jack says, you know. Thank you for your opinion, goodbye. That's very interesting. Uh, thank you. This is from the composer Sibelius. He says, Pay no attention to what the critics say. A statue has never been erected in honor of a critic. <laughs> that was a great line from a composer. You can, you can change the subject. You know, God, you're such a terrible person. And the sky is blue today. <laughs> Grass is green. Cows are in the field. Sometimes you can get the sword of wisdom. We don't have, sometimes there's Buddhas around here that have this sword. It's, it's called a sword of wisdom. It's not a sword. To, it's a sword to cut through ignorance. And it's a sort of, it, it also has this quality of firmness. You know, and sometimes there's a place to say to our mind, enough, stop, no more, let it go. And there's a place for that. You know, it's not a it's not a one size fits all. You know, we can't just say that all the time because we need more subtlety than that. But sometimes our mind is just churning and churning and churning. It's like enough. I don't need to hear this anymore. I, you told me I've blew it fifty times today. Enough. 
And that's an appropriate, skillful means at times. I think one of the most useful qualities to bring, uh, well, to uh, the quality of metta and the quality of compassion, the quality of kindness and the quality of compassion. I often teach metta practice, loving-kindness practice that we teach here, um, which uses statements, for those who don't know, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free, may I be live with ease, may I love myself just as I am, to use those statements as an antidote to the critic. So instead of sowing these seeds again and again and again of self-hatred, we're sowing seeds of love. And sometimes to just say, say one of those phrases after each judgment, oh, you sucked at that, oh, may you be happy. May I be happy. That was pathetic. And may I be peaceful. You're such a loser. And may you be kind to me. And then to feel compassion, compassion for your suffering, compassion for the suffering of where this arises from. The critic is arising from a place of woundedness, of deficiency, of insufficiency, and to feel the suffering of it to feel the suffering of being tormented, feel the suffering of being split, feel the suffering of one mind attacking the other and another aspect of ourselves. Because ultimately that, that really, it's, it's where mindfulness and mindfulness and the heart come together is our greatest asset. When we can hold it with, hold the whole experience with love, with kindness, with chaos, like, oh, this is painful. This is brutal. This is brutalizing. And when we can touch, when we can stay in the heart, dwell in the heart, feel the suffering of it, feel the origin of the suffering. You know, one of the one of the one of the origins of the critic is to help us to avoid. It's it's a way of it's a way that helped protect us from pain. So often, when the critics are rising, it's because we're about to experience some pain, and it. Its habit is to keep the pain suppressed. So it's it's trying to work in our favor. It's trying to be on our side. Except it doesn't. It's it's outdated. It's outmoded. It's a very primitive function of the ego structure that's no longer mostly relevant to our current day lives. So seeing, holding, holding the suffering of that, the the pain, the ignorance that comes from that. So, um, may we all be free of uh, judging critical minds. Um, You know, like anything, it's a practice. And mindfulness is a great support for that. Loving kindness is a great support. Compassion is a great support. Patience is a great support. Having worked with my critic for 25 years, and uh, it's it's um, having a little renaissance of late. I thought, oh, having some patience, you know, some humility that these patterns can resurface. I mean, the, the life and practice is a spiral. We spiral down deeper and deeper levels of these these things. But we can also be free. And I've seen, I've worked with many people around the critic, and I do a lot of private one-on-one work with people, with students. And it's actually some of the most tangible places of freedom that people experience. When people start to get a handle on working with a critic and not being so engaged and having some space and freedom, it's one of the most easy, the most accessible places to feel a sense of freedom, of what, the, what freedom's about on this path because it's one of the places that we suffer the most. And so when we stop suffering, there's a a huge amount of ease that comes around it. And I occasionally meet people who who are relatively free of the critic, and it's it's, it's, it's a beautiful quality to be around. You know, it's it's, it's quite noticeable. The sense of ease and self-acceptance and relaxedness and unguardedness that arises from that. So I'll close with a quote from Bertrand Russell that sort of relates. Well, it's more relates in the theme of compassion. Three passions have governed my life. The longing for love, 
the search for knowledge and unbearable compassion for the suffering of human beings. Love brings ecstasy and relieves loneliness. In the union of love, I have seen in a mystical miniature the the prefiguring vision of the heavens that saints and poets have imagined. With equal passion, I have sought knowledge. I wish to understand the hearts of people and wish to know why the stars shine. Love and knowledge led upwards to the heavens, but always pity and compassion brought me back to earth. Cries of pain reverberated in my heart, of children in famine, of victims tortured, of old people left too helpless. I long to alleviate the evil, but I cannot, and I suffer too. This has been my life. I found it a life worth living. So thank you for your attention. Lovely to see you all. Lovely to be here. May you have lives free of the torment of your inner critic. Thank you. And um, for those of you who don't come so regularly, these talk, the talks that we give here on Monday nights. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.